Hi everybody, I'm Peter Travers. Welcome to Popcorn, where I tell you what is popping in the culture. And Showtime has a series now, seven episodes, called The Loudest Voice, where my guest today, Russell Crowe, plays Roger Ailes, a big giant part, full of complexity. And I'm saying to you before we hear it from Russell himself, that basically this performance that he gives, where you're all thinking, well, Roger Ailes, so he might as well be the Frankenstein monster, what Russell does as the fine actor he is, is doesn't come basically to condemn or condone him, but to understand him. So I congratulate you on that performance because Thank it you. would be so easy to just say, monster. Definitely, but you've got to understand his history. And his history is, is very interesting and it's not what you think it might be. I mean, most people view Roger purely through the perspective and the frame of Fox News. And if they know anything more about him, they know that he was an advisor to three Republican presidents. But when you drill a little deeper and you get into the end of his high school years and his college years, you find a young man who's obsessed with musical theater, who plays the piano, who is the quote unquote life of the party. And then miraculously by the age of 26, he has worked his way up to being the executive producer of The Mike Douglas Show, one of the first forays into daytime chat and variety. You know, one moment he's got an exotic dancer on the show, the next moment he's got Martin Luther King. And he's crossing all of those boundaries and meeting all those people. Including Nixon, right? And yeah. it was a backstage <laughs> chat with Richard Nixon when Nixon was bemoaning the frivolity of television. And Roger, as a young 26-year-old, with some nuts on him, just turned around and said, Mr. Nixon, if you don't begin to understand the power of television, you will never win another election. And it was Ailes in 1968 who said to Joe McGuinness, gave him a quote for the book, The Selling of the President. Roger Ailes in 1968 said, in the future, television networks will be political parties. So you're talking about a young man who had a forward-reaching perspective of what the power of the medium that he chose to work in was. He has all that, and yet in the world we live in now, when we hear that The Loudest Voice is coming as a miniseries, the label just slapped on Roger Ailes is Sexual Predator. It's as if that's the only thing he did. Well, if you Google him, that's all you get. You know, Right now, that's the only information you get is the demise. You know, so, but over the years, you know, his years connected with, with media, he's done many interviews and conversations. He actually was in your position at one point in time, you know, being the sort of, you know, the host of, mm -hmm. uh, of his own interview show, you know. So there's a lot of footage of him and you can get to learn more about the man. And it's not interesting, is it really, if you're doing a show and you just agree to work with that singular label. And when you were doing that research, what was it the thing that made you get over whatever misgivings you had initially? His connection to the theater. Really, it was because, to the theater? Because well, that gave me a different insight into the guy. You know, because you know, he loved musical theater as a young man and then he worked on the Nixon campaign and we know how that went. <laughs> it was an, initially it was what a victory. What a segue. But then, but then <laughs> I'm doing was, musical theater but, and then I'm advising Nixon. Right, and then he elected. spent 10 years as a producer on Broadway. Mm -hmm. He had a minor hit with a show called Hot L Baltimore. But that teaches you about Roger's perspective. So when you're looking then at Fox News 
and you're seeing the way Fox News delivers their information, you've got to understand it from a theatrical perspective. What's my opening number? What, am I, what are they going to get before the break? <laughs> What's the you know? 11 o'clock How do we number? finish? You <laughs> right. know? Yeah. And all of those theatre <laughs> rules play out in how information is delivered in a news channel. And what Roger saw that what other people didn't see, and, and he you know, did many, many interviews on this subject after Fox News had started, you know, he looked at media collectively and how news was delivered, and he had worked in the business for a long time. And he had tried to do this a number of times, including through the Nixon White House, where you create a news service which gives you directly what the president intends, you know. And he'd tried a number of times, and back in the days of video or whatever, he wasn't able to deliver that news service nationwide until the technology caught up with his idea and Rupert Murdoch came along with the pockets deep enough to set it at the level that it needed to be set. But what he was seeing, or what his perception was, is that you could take CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, C-SPAN, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, The Post, The Times, you could take all of that, that media, and in his mind, all of that media has a left-leaning bent. Mm-hmm. So what he saw was a gap in the market roughly equivalent to 50%. And then he set about claiming that market. But many times he said, if his perception was that it was swayed the other way, Fox News would have been a channel with a democratic purpose. You know? <laughs> so um, He was filling a void, wasn't he? That's right. He saw a niche open in the market that he believed was underserved, and he went to serve that... Now, to, to be as wildly successful as it has been, and we have to see that clearly. Fox News alone Mm -hmm. makes $2 billion a year in profit, a news service, Mm -hmm. you know, or (laughs) essentially a news service. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm reminded when you just brought up Gladiator that basically we're in the ring. We have in America now a divisiveness between where nobody comes together on anything You're in that ring, and it also becomes the great line from Gladiator about, are we not entertained? News has become that. What is it going to be? He made a gladiatorial contest out of it, didn't he? Well, he looked at what tabloid newspapers and magazines were allowed to get away with, and he applied that to television news. That is, do you sit on your hands and wait for the next hurricane? (laughs) Or do you create the next hurricane? Because I got people to pay, you know, (laughs) I got viewers to serve. So that's when, you know, you get into the thing of of not just simply reporting the news, but there is an element of authorship in that news. And then just as you think you figured him out, you don't. One of the great things is that every episode skips to another year. It's, it's or not, a bunch it's a, of years a forward. A bunch of years forward. 96 to 2001 to 2006. To 9-11, mm-hmm. where we see him actually passionate about what's happening. Mm. Uh, yes, we see him also saying, you should call during the Obama years. I want him by, called Barack Hussein Obama mm-hmm. every second. And he kind of is amused sometimes when he sees it played out. Mm-hmm. But there he's not amused. You know, He just has this definite feeling about what he's putting out there. Over the well, years. to not use an expression that's probably overly used, 
You know, 9-11 weaponizes Roger. Because mm-hmm. now the country needs him. The White House needs him. The country needs him to frame this so they can understand it and go forward into essentially to a war, mm-hmm. to a response. The network is a political party. You know, that's what we're really seeing. But when, inf- when you start examining and seeing how Fox News has a bias towards one side, you also see how other people have their own bias. Mm-hmm. And everything has bias. As Roger says in a later episode, you don't think the New York Times isn't curated every day to have a bias? You know, of course it is. Um, but I think, you know, what you have with Fox and, and what's become problematic is, as you were saying before, there is no longer any room for discussion. There's no longer any room for people to have different points of view and share those points of view because both sides are being fed extreme versions of what is the truth. And the truth itself becomes something which is optional. And that's not healthy for anybody. I don't think it is, but the point is made over and over again that we're seeing it. You're showing it rather than telling it. We're seeing what's going on when we're watching this series to do it. The other thing that I have to address is that people who are saying, where's Russell Crowe? What did you have to suffer through to... Oh. <laughs> and well, I assume it's suffering. Uh, you, your assumption is correct, Peter. <laughs> uh, you know, the process of that, you know, I, I originally thought there might be multiple ways that we could approach Roger over the time and everything, but in reality, by 96, he was pretty much how he was going to be for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he had certain phases when he was younger he had a phase where he wore a goatee he had a phase where he wore a lot of purple (laughs) but by the time you get to 96 rogers pretty much pretty much looks like roger does you know for the the rest of his days so i kind of had only one option and that was to go with prosthetics two ball caps um, full facial stuff full neck Um, the only thing of me you can see is a little bit of my forehead my eyes and my mouth, everything else is makeup. I can't recall you in any other role where you've had to do so much with anything like this makeup. Right, well, see, if you go back through my career, there has been lots of stuff which builds up to this. If you go all the way back to something like a romper stomper, Mm -hmm. where I'm doing seven or eight hours a week getting tattoos put on. Mm -hmm. You do something like virtuosity, where there's a period of the film where I spend the time with these shards of glass coming out of my head, you know? (laughs) Yeah, A Beautiful Mind, for example, there's a full aging makeup with John Nash by the time he's winning the Nobel Prize. Cinderella Man, I've got ears, nose, widow's peak. You know, I've had lots of experience with makeup, but never anything as completely consuming as this particular makeup, you know? And, yeah. I, and I knew Roger's height and I knew his width, and I'm a lot taller than him, so I had to also work to the geometry of him mm-hmm. to try and get the middle <laughs> in relation to, the, to the, the height, the latitude and longitude of him, you know? And um, that, was quite, that was quite tricky, you know? And, you know, I've learnt my lessons going back a long way that if you're going to do that sort of stuff it takes you time it takes you time to get there and it takes you time to come back from it and you have to allow for that process did you try to contact anybody in terms yeah. of yeah i um his widow well that was the one that i failed at and i i was really you failed di- at. i was disappointed 
But, I, you know, I got a contact for her. She knew I was going to be reaching out. I reached out, and then she didn't respond. Um, that was unfortunate, but I didn't try a second time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, I, I get her opinion, and that's the thing is you've got to understand that he, he, this is a series of real people mm-hmm. who are being fictionalized, and there's just no way in the world that what, what we've done is going to be seen by them as being connected to reality. It's just a TV show. You, you never know? met Roger Ailes? In- I think I was in a room with him in the early 2000s. Was he the I, loudest voice in that room? Uh, <laughs> but I don't ever remember that we had anything more than a brief head nod. You know, we didn't have a mm-hmm. conversation, you know. Let's get a question from the people outside. Let's see what they want to ask you, okay? It's right. going to be on there. Uh, Lana S. says, cannot wait to see The Loudest Voice. It's an important story to be told. Is it tougher for you to play real people parts? Yeah, well, there, it is because there's a certain responsibility. If you're just playing a, mm-hmm. a fantasy figure like a Maximus or a Robin Longstride or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you can sort of just... Um, go with yeah, this is the Robin Hood I remember. Right. <laughs> That's it, sure. Yeah, but certainly there's a, a responsibility. Like, you know, <clears throat> i just make it very clear. I, I, I probably don't sound like Roger Ailes. I probably don't really walk like Roger Ailes. I probably don't really, you know, actually, you know, forensically look like Roger Ailes, <laughs> you know. But there's what I try to do is something of what I'm doing holds the truth of who he was as a man, you know. Oh, that's right, we were talking about people that I've met that, that work with him. Uniformly, the people who worked with Roger over a long period of time, when I sat down to talk to them, what they really wanted to communicate was that they loved him, that they missed him, that they respected his leadership. And it was like, I was a little overwhelmed by that because I thought I was going to be sitting in front of a whole bunch of people who were going to air their complaints. Mm-hmm. And here they were, they were talking about a guy that, you know, if you do that Google search, it is, it, it, we're talking about a monster, and I'm sitting in front of them, and they were telling me about the real man who took time with them to help them mold their careers, who changed people's lives, who took, you know, uh, a cleaner who had a desire to be a makeup woman, and she became a makeup woman and then a head of department and, you know, incredible stories So like it's that, women you know? as well as men that were telling you this. Yeah, and yeah. benefiting from his faith in them, mm. you know? Now, obviously, there's a dark, dark edge to Roger's misuse of power, yeah. you know? But without making any excuses for that, I can see the chain through the culture. Because we go back to the Mike Douglas show. Executive producer, summer of love, sexual revolution. You know, he has things ingrained in him then in terms of power and how he can get an advantage or an edge over somebody then. Mm -hmm. And then that goes through the washing machine of politics. Then that goes through the process of being a a, a Broadway producer. It does, it comes back to that. It comes back to this thing you told me you found interesting about the character and about him with musical theater for doing that. And I have here, isn't that good of me? Because (laughs) I can't talk to you without talking about music because it's always been a part of your life. And my entire creative life is based on music. And when people talk about accents and things like that, that's about music. When you talk about how you deliver dialogue, that is about music, you know? So 
and I always find the busier I am, the more focused I am on a character, the more songs I start to write. And my weekend and my spare time becomes filled with that stuff because, you know, you're operating your machine at a high level and it just what wants to sort of have an out uh, an, an outlet you know you still have the band are you still do you still go out yeah 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 um but it's changed i mean a lot of people only think of my music finishing with a band called 30 old foot of grunts that's right but that that band no that was it you went to another that, one yeah they disbanded yeah. in 2003 but that band had been together 20 years mm-hmm. and then the next band i was with was called the ordinary fear of god and then i started doing these shows with a guy called alan doyle who i write songs with mm-hmm. And we call the shows Indoor Garden Parties, which is a play on um, a, a cultural thing in, in, in Newfoundland where yeah. people go to kitchen parties and everybody in the room sings a song. You know, So the Indoor Garden Parties as the concerts became the name of the band. So it's like over time, people who were guests at those concerts became like actual core ba- band members. So people can get this and yeah, do it. it's on iTunes. But you know how I always that. like to end a show with you and song. You did it last. You just did like something absolutely terrifying from Les Miserables. Oh, did I? It was your vocal exercise, right. and I think it destroyed the microphones and right. everything that was here. <laughs> well, if, but as, can you give you me a little that. something, just a <clears throat> snippet of something as, from as this? I've, I've oh, just, I don't want to do just that. finished recording in, in Sweden. Yeah. And, and your voice is gone. It's shot. But, so I'm so. only asking for something tender right. because that's all. Something really just, not pure rock and roll. Just, I'll explain <laughs> to you later. <laughs> I can't do anything at the minute. All right? Not even the tiniest no. little humming. I have to be, got to be really, really careful. Mm, I'm thinking of I've it. I've got I other won't. conversations I need to do today. <laughs> I'm not Roger Ailes. I don't have his powers of persuasion <laughs> to do that. Don't undersell yourself, but I, Pete. Well, if, if it worked, you You're know. the butter on the popcorn, son. I would have the butter <laughs> on the popcorn. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm just an abject failure, but I'm still thrilled that you stopped. It's lovely to see you now. <laughs>